Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Thursday episode of the Fraudology podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. I am so happy to welcome back my good friend and one of the favorite guests of the podcast, Gil Rosenthal, to Fraudology. I asked Gil to join me today to talk a bit about a post that he did on LinkedIn recently about multi-factor authentication. And to anyone outside of fraud, that might sound like a really boring topic, but uh, I know that especially bringing Gil in, it'll be really interesting to all of you. Uh, So Gil, thank you so much for joining me again on Fraudology. Thank you for inviting me, Chris. It's always great to be here. I have not counted up who has uh, visited the podcast the most, but I would imagine it's probably you and or Frank McKenna who are in the lead for first place. Uh, and if we were going by Saturday Night Live standards, I would owe both of you a green jacket. Um, I, I am very, very honored and, and always, always happy to talk to you on the podcast and off. Likewise, that's what I enjoy having you on the podcast, because I think that we both have similar viewpoints on fraud, especially since you, uh, you know, became a consultant, and then now, you know, building choir and all that you're doing there, you know, working with more than one entity and getting to see how fraud is impacting different types of companies in different ways from a kind of a 10,000 foot view. But it's also great because while it's very similar, it's different too, because the primary focus of the companies that I work with in my consultancy are are typically e-commerce. And the ones that you typically work with are financial services, you know, banks, uh, lending, etc. So it's similar, but different. So I always learn something whenever you come on the podcast or whenever we talk off the recording too. Uh, same. Always find myself uh, learning something new, either when speaking to you or just le- listening to the podcast, which I do pretty religiously. I appreciate that too. There are some people who listen to it all the time that I'm like, are you sure you learn anything? But they I, all the time. And um, that's something I, that's why I keep doing it too, is I learn something from my guests all the time too. And I think the majority of us in this industry, that's what we consider a good day is when we've learned something new. So speaking of that, I didn't actually get to spend that much time on LinkedIn last week. But as I was perusing it a little bit the other day, I came across uh, one of your posts, which I always enjoy because you're very thoughtful about things. And, you know, they're just helpful information that make people think there's not any hidden agenda or anything else. It's just here's what I'm thinking. And, um, you know, it was around multi-factor authentication. And, you know, for a while there, MFA was kind of considered the gold standard as far as, you know, putting some a defense in to be able to protect a user's account. Um, but as we know, and like with everything, you know, <laughs> anything that's successful at first isn't going to be forever because, you know, this invisible adversary that we all have is finding ways around it. Um, so 
I guess first, if you wouldn't mind, you know, sharing a little bit about what is multi-factor authentication or when is it used and how have you seen it used? Yeah, uh, happy to do that. And I think that that's a very good starting point is just understanding basically how different companies use multi-factor authentication, what it means. So multi-factor authentication is the concept of verifying that you are who you claim to be uh, in, in your online activity using two different methods, right? And the goal for these two different methods are for those to be distinct methods, meaning it's not the same if I asked you to give me the your driver's license number and the magnetic strip at the back of your driver's license, because both of those come from the same thing, right? So the goal of multi-factor authentication is to uh, get two items from you, one of which is something you know, and the other is either something you have or something you are, right? Something you know is usually your username and your password when we're talking in online authentication, online authentication. And then it's a question of what is the other thing? The main object that has been used for multi-factor authentication for the past decade or so, and that has become quite ubiquitous in the industry is something you have access to on your phone. And the reason for that is because um, about 15 years ago, we all started having smartphones, right? And because we all have smartphones, we all have access to our emails, to text messages, to different apps on our phone. Our phone is with us for most of us, the majority of the time, and it is pretty exclusive to us. It's the other people being able to use your phone is something that isn't very common. Um, so people share computers a lot more than they share phones, for example. They share email addresses a lot more than they share phones. So that turned the phone into the main object of multi-factor authentication. Um, the, there are other options that some companies use. There are other ways to do this, but this is the most common one. Um, there are a few different variations of it. It could be uh, what's called an OTP, one-time password, which gets generated and sent to your phone in an SMS, in an email, for you to then enter into your the session you're in, right? So you take that code and you put it in, and because you have access to that code, you have access to your email or to your phone, and because you have access to your phone, it is very, very likely you, and you've, you've now given me two factors of authentication. Um, the other methods would include um, different apps, so authentication apps. Uh, th there are different ones in the market that constantly generate codes. And then each company that you want to use that app with, you specifically set it up. So you have a code that allows you constantly to log in to that company, but only whoever has access to your specific app, authentication app, has access to that code. Um, so you don't get a text message sent to you. You don't get an email. They just tell you, go to your app, find the number, and then come back to us and put in this number here. Um, there's a thing called magic links where you get a link, you click the link, there's no code involved, um, but only the person who has access to that link can proceed with the session. Uh, Multi-factor authentication is mostly used uh, at login when companies need to verify the identity of the person interacting with them. However, depending on how you are, you've built your defenses and depending on, on the type 
of company you are. A lot of companies will also put multi-factor authentication at other stages. So changing your payment details, changing your contact details, uh, performing a higher risk transaction. All of those a lot of times can be challenged with multi-factor authentication before allowed to proceed. Um, um, and there are a few other examples, including when you're contacting your uh, uh, customer success or support and other places. Um, like you said, this has become gold standard in the industry. However, I think it's important not to confuse gold standard with silver bullet, right? Like those are very two different things. Um, so I, I think that's kind of what drove my post is seeing more and more companies, um, seeing spikes in how many bad actors seem to be able to bypass multi-factor authentication and needing to think about, okay, what do we do about this? Or how do we even start thinking about this? Because they were sure that that is close to a silver bullet where because I have this, I am going to not see a spike of um, account takeovers or of account takeover. right, or other types of, yeah. But I mean, it is primarily for protecting the account, right? Because it has to be something that that company knows you have. And so if they've never done business with you before, they're not necessarily, I mean, you will do, often you'll do a one-time password or, you know, a magic link or something like that when you're setting up an account uh, to verify that you do have that phone number, that you're not just making up a phone number and, and all of that. But once they do that, then the other times that it'll be used is whenever, um, and different companies set it up in different ways. Like you said, sometimes there's one particular, and I bet everyone will probably guess what it is, but I'm not calling them out. There's one particular um, shopping platform uh, or um, e-commerce platform that anytime I am placing an order with a company that uses this platform uh, for their payments, I have to enter a one-time password. And I'm like, for the love of God, you have seen me, you know, at this point, I'm like, you have seen me make so many purchases on this device, on this card, with all this information. I'm auto-filling it from my phone. Like, why is this necessary, right? But other times, so, but each company has to set it up differently, where sometimes it's all the time. And they probably have that set that way because there's been a lot of compromises. And so they're trying to, you know, be, that's just, you know, a, purely conjecture. But then other times, you know, companies can be a little more sophisticated in saying only when there's been account changes, right? Or only when, you know, changing the payment method or changing the, um, you know, the deposit bank account, for example, if it's, you know, financial services, or it's a peer to peer uh, money transfer app, right? If you're changing the deposit bank account, well, we should probably make sure that you are who you say you are. And then to your point, just kind of to emphasize the, you know, highlight the differences between a one-time password and an authentication app, that one-time password is essentially, while the intent is for, you know, the company or the bank or financial services, you know, to be verifying that you have your phone and that you, um, you know, you are who you say you are, really what it's doing is verifying that you have the phone number and you have access to the phone number. And we'll, you know, obviously talk about uh, you know, the different types of ways that fraudsters are getting around this and then, you know, um, ways to identify if it's happening on your end uh, in just a minute. But um, I think it's just, you know, good to know that that's one way of around it is just, well, do you have the phone number versus do you have that actual phone. And with an authentication app, it's do you have the app on this device? Because you can't, you know, you might be able to log into 
an email address on a different computer. You might be able to have a phone number, you know, transferred somewhere else or, you know, to a different device, but you really can't transfer an app on a specific device to another device without the user being involved. Um, so while those are a little more secure, those are also a little more complex and they often rely on the user to be enrolled in the authentication app. Well, we all know that when we're relying on a consumer to do an extra step, that's not always going to be the, you know, the best way either. Um, and I know that there are some companies, you know, depending on if they are, you know, the size of them, as well as all the things that they offer, who have been doing multi-factor authentication differently. You know, when, if it's Google or if it's Microsoft, right, you're using their operating system or, you know, Apple using the operating system, that's obviously so much easier to verify who you are with them uh, because they have access to your entire life and they know all the devices in your house and all that um, than it would be if you're, you know, logging into a vacation, you know, an app to book a vacation that you haven't logged into in a while, something like that. Yeah. And, and I think you, you kind of hit the nail on the head uh, about one-time password being in some ways different in this space because one-time password at the end of the day is still a password and, and, and passwords are imperfect and, and passwords are vulnerable in a lot of different ways um, to, to being stolen and they can be stolen through, through access to the password but they can also be stolen by getting access to the person who got that password. Uh, and I, I loved the uh, episode you did with Robert a couple of weeks ago. It was uh, amazing to, to hear from someone who actually knows how to do this hands-on, how these scams can work and how these so the social engineering can work. But basically, the biggest gap today with multi-factor authentication is just that bad actors now have so many tools and so many methods to get good users to just give them that one-time password. And and that's all they have to do in order to hack into a lot of systems is get that one-time password because that is used instead of a password, uh, instead of in, in the forget forgot password process, uh, in the account verification process, like you said, to verify an email, to verify a phone number. To, so there are so many fraud attacks that you can do if you know how to get a legitimate user to just share with you the password that they got in a text message. Right. That's a really good point. It's not, you don't necessarily need to have the phone number. You just, you know, need to have a way to get the number that was sent to that phone. And, you know, we've definitely heard of a lot of different types of you know social engineering phone calls that are targeting consumers or employees you know in fact that was <laughs> by all accounts and at least from what i can tell and uh stories have gone kind of dark on the mgm hack uh since the week that it happened i'm sure uh, that is intentional uh by mg on mgm's part um and but from everything I could tell, you know, learning about scattered spiders MO as well as, you know, what little was told about the point of compromise in that attack is that it was essentially someone who was posing as an, an employee in the IT department calling their internal IT help desk saying, I can't, um, you know, I can't get access to or they needed access to their account and they actually asked for the one-time password to put in because they, you know, whatever the story was. And I don't know what that story was, but what they were trying to get at was, okay, they, they 
figured out the guy's username. They figured out his password or, or woman. I don't know. Um, just law of averages within tech, probably a man. Um, and, you know, guessed his you know, username and uh, knew his username and password, but didn't have the one-time password. So needing to call IT to ask for help to get through that. Um, that actually wasn't even intentional in that conversation, but it's just, it's a very good example of, it may not be just there. The goal of the fraudster may not be just to steal that account or just to steal that, you know, the funds that are in that bank account or, you know, to use the stored payment method on a wallet or something else. It could be to, you know, get gain access to a company's systems to then hand it over to, you know, an organized crime group that does, ransomware yeah yeah totally and be, and that, this is where um our industry overlaps with cybersecurity pre- pretty cleanly right as multi-factor authentication is basically a cybersecurity measure a lot more than it's fraud protection measure it's a fraud protection signal right we use it to to understand if it's likely that the person who is going to be transacting is a legitimate is is a, is the the person we think they are or they claim to be, but um, but yes, this is first and foremost cybersecurity tool. You're right, and that's a good example of how you know those of us in fraud prevention have had to learn to repurpose things that you know work for other departments or you know things like that. But I think you know one benefit of you know, any kind of multi-factor authentication being in the market for a long time and being used by so many different types of companies in different ways is that consumers are used to it, right? When it first ha- when it first started, there were a lot of online companies that wouldn't have touched that with a 10-foot pole because they would have felt like that was friction. Um, you know, whether it's a mobile app for a, you know, food ordering, food delivery service, or whether it's a, you know, rideshare company or something like that, they wouldn't have wanted to use it because it was friction. But then, you know, with so many other types of companies, whether, you know, starting in financial services and then on, um, you know, adopted it. And oftentimes, you're right, you can use it while it's often brought in and managed by cybersecurity. You can say, hey, here's some other use cases I want to put this in on. Um, And it can be a good tool, but just, you know, The downside of having it be used everywhere is that when that starts to be the thing that, you know, catches the mouse, so to speak, or, you know, in our cat and mouse game, or it prevents, you know, the fraudsters from uh, accomplishing their goal, well, they're going to find ways around it. And, you know, speaking of those ways around it, you know, you've kind of mentioned one of them as far as, you know, having you know, contacting the person who has the account and obviously not saying, Hey, I want to take over your account. Can you send me the, the numbers? But obviously, you know, using some kind of system, you know, or similar story is what Robert used as far as, you know, probably most likely impersonating that business and saying, you know, we thought that your account might've been compromised. And so we just sent you a code and, you know, I need you to tell that to me so we can make sure that you have the account, that type of thing. But how do you, I mean, first, as far as before we kind of go into, you know, understanding the kind of the five different ways that you've mapped out that this can be attacked and used, how do you, you know, how will a team know that fraud, you know, did bypass the you know, one-time password or the multi-factor authentication, right? If if I work for a fraud, cert, or, you know, a financial services company, a financial institution, a, you know, any company that uses multi-factor authentication, whether it's an OTP, whether it's you know something else, um, 
how am I going to know that that's where to look, that maybe that's what's happening? Yeah. So the monitoring I suggest to put into place is around what I'm calling MFA unauth claims. So these, so basically how many of your unauth claims, if it, depending on who you are, it could be disputes, it could be chargebacks, it could be different types of claims, uh, but how many of them are coming from users who in the, the session they are making the claim on passed a multi-factor authentication uh, successfully, right? And then if you have that monitoring, you can look for spikes. So if it's steady, you might have a problem, but it's, it's an ongoing steady problem that you need to address. You can decide that it, those levels are too high for your company or too low, too low or just enough. That, that is risk appetite, right? However, if there's a spike, clearly something is happening. And what I, I tend to suggest is first and foremost, have your guidebook of this is what we do if we see a spike, um, because that's the first thing you want you want to prevent. Afterwards, you can start looking into just lowering these in general. Um, so, so that's the that's the basics of identifying that there's potentially right now an actual attack on your customers through uh, some method of bypassing your more multi-factor authentication process. So, are you looking at the claims? I mean. At the end of the day, you're looking at the the claims from the account holders of unauthorized use um, of their account. And then when you're going back and looking at that, you're seeing, oh, all of these went through multi-factor authentication. And so having a way to, and I'm such a proponent of this and not sure why it's not as common as I think it should be. But then again, that could be a long list of, you know, reporting, right? That is easy for financial institutions and banks. And, and I know that's something you've been working on quite a bit, uh, providing that to companies as far as, you know, being able to know when you have those spikes, but being able to say, okay, we need to have some kind of a dashboard. And one of the things on it is going to be the accounts that or the claims that we've had of unauthorized you know, use, whether that's, you know, withdrawals or whatever, whatever it is that you're putting that, you know, extra layer of security on, and then tied to, well, how many of those went through multi-factor authentication? And then when you see a spike, or when you see, you know, a steady rise, and you realize, okay, this is increased, obviously, someone or a group of someone's have found ways to manipulate our MFA, you know, process, then that's when you dive in and start trying to decide, well, or trying to identify through an investigation, um, what, you know, how have they been able to manipulate that? Yeah, the, the goal is to understand you need to start basically that root cause analysis work of investigation. And the monitoring is, is the way to get there. You can use a, a dashboard in some companies I've worked with. It's just an email alert or a Slack alert where if the number has grown in the last seven days compared to the last 30 days by a certain percentage, it triggers a message, please investigate, right? And that just sits there and waits for the spike to become apparent enough. It's not just one or two customers who can create a spike like this. It needs to be a bit more than that. Um, and, and then you you basically get the message, start investigating. and. That's the uh, that that would be my recommended process for something like this. Is dashboards are great, but in this case, you just want the bottom line. 
Yeah. No, that's a really good point. Setting up a workflow and a notification of, hey, we've had, you know, more unauthorized, you know, claims on transactions that had multi-factor authentication, you know, that was successful, you know, more in the last seven days than we have in the last 30, you know, so here's, or whatever that risk appetite is to your point. And because we know that, you know, like you said, if it's just happening to one and two, you know, one, two, 10, 20, whatever, you know, group it is, it, it could just be, well, it probably most likely maybe, you know, first party fraud or something like that. But when it's a spike, we know that, you know, fraudsters are like toddlers in a lot of ways. And if they find a way to get something, they're just going to keep exploiting the heck out of it until that, you know, that gets patched up or that hole gets, you know, fixed. And so, uh, or you run out of cookies, so to speak, <laughs> in the toddler analogy. And so, you know, there, that's why there'd be a spike, right? If there's not a spike, then it's probably anomalous or, you know, maybe they're testing it, but it's probably not enough. There probably isn't enough data for you to say, okay, this is what's actually happening. But when there is a spike, you need to be able to mobilize and have someone assigned to investigate it because clearly that spike is going to continue to grow. It's going to be like a wildfire until you identify the cause and, you know, go to the root cause analysis and fix it. Yeah, and, and some companies have even more sophisticated ways because unauth claims by themselves are belated, right? Like they only happen, not only do they happen after the fact, a lot of times they happen quite a meaningful amount of time after the fact. Um, not everyone files a claim, so there's a, there's always a part from that. Uh, so it's it's an imperfect method to begin with, but once you spot it, you definitely want to react very quickly because like you said, fraud stirs... I tend to think about it more like a disease that it multiplies and multiplies and multiplies and multiplies. So if you don't treat it, it takes over very quickly. Um, but yes. Yeah, whatever the analogy is, right, it's going to grow and, and get bigger uh, over time. And that's exactly it. And so I think that's, you know, it's a good reminder of how to look at it. And I think that, you know, while it might be a you know, a review for some people, as I was sharing with you before the podcast, or before recording this, I feel like there's, you know, really only, you know, when you're looking at where to get information about our industry, uh, it's a challenge <laughs> in a lot of ways. But, you know, the majority of the voices in the industry are, are those that are providing solutions. And I mean, you and I as consultants, in a way we are as well. Um, but you know, oftentimes it's talking about the problem. Uh, and a lot of the, you know, buyers, so to speak, or the people who are in it and practitioners can't always speak about what that problem looks like. And so what, you know, I think you and I try to do as much as we can is try to provide a little more insight for the people who have the problem about how to identify that you have the problem, how to know if you have the problem, and then how to understand the problem so you can identify a solution. If you're just being told about the solution without being told, well, here's how you figure out you even have a problem or, you know, which solution to use. And I think there's just oftentimes an assumption that everyone knows that, but um, 
you know, there wouldn't be unless unless you've had this before, right? If you've never had a, an MFA attack, if you've never worked with a company that's had, you know, an attack on their MFA system or, you know, whatever, you know, account takeovers in general. And then on top of that, you add multi-factor authentication to try to reduce account takeovers. And then having that, you, you may not know where to look or, or, okay, now I know where to look and now I know when to look. But what am I looking for and what are they signs of? And that's kind of was the the bulk of your post. So I'd love for you to kind of share about that. Yeah, yeah. I, I try to focus mostly on what can you do to investigate when um, you get that alert, that signal, that there's a spike and, and focusing specifically on the spikes. And I think there are a few things you can do, but the first thing you have to keep in mind before you're doing other investigations is the most likely attack on multi-factor authentication is an attack where the bad actors are getting the password from the users. So it happening completely outside of your system and in a way making you half blind to that. And uh, I'm going to park that for a minute and talk about three other things that you can investigate that are in your system that are very clear and clean to look at. And then we can circle back to 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 this and and to to basically the, the friendly fraud false claims type attack that is also one that is a lot harder for you to to identify and spot just in the data. So the easiest things to spot in your data are one if there's an actual um, if there was an actual MFA pass or not. Meaning this is similar to what you and Nate from Spec talked about a few weeks ago, bad actors in some cases, in some systems with some MFA providers, with some merchants or vendors or, or, or financial institutions can find ways to basically add to their online session the token that says that they passed multi-factor authentication without actually passing it. Once they're able to do that, they are much more trusted. They bypass that defense. Um, and and that is a good way for them to fool the system. Mature good systems should not have this gap, but uh, but but plenty do. And so the first thing the first thing when investigating is just double check, right? Uh, check with your MFA provider. Check in your systems. Check, double check that they really did actually go through it. That a text was sent to the phone. That a text was the text was received. That this isn't a bypassing attack. If you're a regular listener of Fraudology, you've heard me talk about SPEC. Not only does their no-code platform let you instantly assemble the fraud solutions that you need to stay ahead of bad actors, but SPEC's long list of integrations is always growing, empowering you to orchestrate your data to create customized customer journeys. SPEC lets you stay ahead of fraud while enabling great customer experiences for your legitimate users. Request your personalized demo of Specs Trust Cloud today at specprotected.com. That's www.specprotected.com. Or you can visit their website by clicking the link in today's show notes. And I think that's a really good point, and I'm glad you mentioned it because that is uh, it's sim it's very similar to what we're seeing, you know, with bot attacks as well. Is and Nate did mention this type. You know, we did spend probably the majority of the conversation talking about you know JavaScript blocking because that happens so much. But you know, with people with bad actors that are trying to fool 
bot you know detection as well oftentimes they'll do both where they block the javascript but then they're also copying that session it's a session replay like what nate talked about as far as you know they're basically bypassing all of the first things are just going straight to the system and you know basically straight to the api and being able to you know bypass something and so in this they're bypassing the mfa in that case they're bypassing bot detection. I'm almost positive with what little I know of those processes and all that, that you can probably uh, successfully do both if you need to in the same same session with a session replay, depending on where, where you're kind of taking that snippet of information and replaying it. Um, but how, you know, um, I believe you when you say it's one of the easiest things to check, but how would someone check as far as, I mean, and obviously it's going to depend on the type of solution you have and who owns that relationship with the vendor, if it's, you know, cybersecurity, et cetera. But I would imagine that in some cases, the entity itself, the financial institution, the merchant, the whoever they are, um, that they may have records of those texts going out and being, you know, sent back in, but then also, you know, vendors would as well. So in some cases, like if you if you are the company who issued this and you sent it to a vendor and it went from the vendor, there are two ways that you can investigate. The first is, did you actually send a message asking for a multi-factor authentication on the session? Because some of this attack isn't about passing your request for multi-factor authentication. It's about them coming in wanting to for you to assume that they already did. So the like so that's and like that usually is the relatively easy thing to do in your systems, depending on how good your systems are keeping track of these things and how good of an access you have to those records. The other thing that is relatively easy, though takes time, is to reach out to your vendor and tell them that you're seeing the spike and saying, okay, here here is a list of cases. Please help us confirm that all of all of these were actually sent and received and and your vendor should have records because they are sending a text message that they get confirmation that that text message was sent and received that um, that they can tell a lot better um, that that this is a successful MFA pass or a bypass. Uh, so that when it's very painful, that is something that I've seen companies do that uh, in some cases you find a bug and then it's a very interesting conversation with your vendor. <laughs> There's been several of those interesting conversations with vendors that I'm aware of anyways over the last several months, not just about MFA, but um, hey, so they found a bug on your system and, <laughs> you know, you're going to own that. Um, because, yeah, I was going to say, I mean, in theory, we would hope that the vendor is proactively looking for those and, and verifying that that's not happening. But we know that, you know, we do not live in a perfect world. Uh, and there are often a lot of products that are set it and forget it um, on the solution provider side. And if there isn't you know, anyone really managing that product day in and day out and looking at those things and looking for anomalies, they may not see them. So um, it's a good thing to rule out in your diagnostics, so to speak. Yeah, totally. So so I think that's one way. The two other ways relate very much to the phone in cases where it's, it's, it's a one-time password sent via SMS. One of them is checking if there was a recent phone number change. So depending on your defenses, in some cases, it's a lot easier to change a phone number uh, for a bad actor than to complete a transaction without getting a multi-factor authentication challenge. So if I can change the phone number first, 
I will go, I will do that. And then when the multi-factor authentication is triggered, it goes to my phone, it doesn't go to yours. I'm able to bypass it. And you mean just to clarify that changing the phone number that is on file with you know the the financial institution or you know the online company. So within the account, you're changing the phone number there. Exactly. And then that's in your records. You can see if there were recent phone number changes to the accounts associated with the spike. And then if if there are, that's a good signal that maybe you have a gap that is specifically there and your bad actors were able to identify that that gap exists and attack it specifically. This was quite common, uh, I'd say like seven years ago. There was a string of those attacks. A lot of them have been addressed since. Uh, Systems today are for the most part more sophisticated about contact detail changes and when to to issue the challenge and make make you confirm that you are who you say you are. Right, moving that multi-factor authentication to, you know, before they can change the contact details. Yes. Right, so before you can change the phone number, before you can change the email address on your account, before you can change the address or, you know, the corresponding bank account or anything else, you have to go through a challenge. Exactly. So, um, but that is a good best practice to do. It is usually pretty quick to run that check. Uh, these are usually systems most fraud operators and, and companies I know have quick access to. So um, that that's something I recommend doing j- just because it saves a lot of time later if that's the gap. And then, um, well, and then just adding to that, there's two different ways to change it contact details, right? One is through, you know, by yourself within the account. The other is by contacting customer service or, you know, guest services to have them do it. But there should be a record either way uh, and identifying the pattern there. So, you know, again, if they find a gap, they're going to keep duplicating that exact route. So, you know, if you see an update to a phone number, it's important to look to see if it was done, you know, through the system within the user's account or if it was done through through customer service because you're going to address it in two different ways internally. I mean, ultimately, you're going to want to address it the same way. But if they're calling in and, you know, they're not doing it within the account, having multi-factor authentication trigger when you're trying to change a phone number isn't going to change that attack. You're going to have to address it at customer service. Yeah, that that is, is perfect addition to, uh, to what I was saying because that is very, very true. It, those are different handling, so checking checking on that is very very appropriate. Um, the third thing I think people can can look into or should look into very quickly at the beginning of these investigations is if you see a commonality in the phone provider that the text message was sent to in this spike. So if it all goes to similar phone providers, a lot of times. Uh, I, when I've seen these gaps, it was a lot of times related to smaller phone providers, but I know some of the larger ones have also been having issues. Um, but a lot of the more sophisticated attacks related to, to sw- SIM swapping, different types of men in the middle attacks using the, the phone provider, uh, all rely on the bad actor being able to manipulate a phone provider. And being able to manipulate a phone provider usually isn't easy. And once they find the phone provider that they can manipulate, they keep using the same one over and over again. So depending on your system, this might be a very easy record to look to look up. It's a lot of times tied next, like the right in the next field next to the phone number or next to when the phone number was updated. In some cases, it's more complex. If you don't have access to this, 
if you're already reaching out, yeah, if you're already reaching out to the vendor to the vendor doing your multi-factor authentication, they definitely have access to this information. So you can also ask them for this information. But this is a good best practice check. Again, I wouldn't stop my investigation until you waiting to have all of these data points back. But I would work on getting these data points very quickly because they could be the difference between easy solutions and very complex solutions because the other options of what this could be become a lot more complex pretty quickly. Right, right. That's a really good point. And uh, just kind of wrapping up the one, you know, about the phone providers and, and looking for those, you know, uh, similarities and, you know, identify, oh, okay, so out of all of these unauthorized you know, money movement or whatever, you know, the unauthorized transaction that went through multi-factor authentication, they all, all of those account holders, you know, all of the phone numbers were registered to the same phone company. Or, and I think it's important to say, not just registered beforehand, but also were moved to. So either looking at who did the original account holder who had their phone number, you know, who who was their phone company. And then if there was suddenly a change in phone companies, you know, when you sent an, a one-time password, you know, all of a sudden, right before that unauthorized transaction, most likely your provider, when they're sending the OTP, you know, number or the password to the phone number is sending it to a whole new phone company. Uh, that could be, that would be the two ways that I would look for it and looking for the commonality. I think oftentimes people will look at, well, who do the, you know, maybe it's the account holders. They all use the same phone company and that might be where the breach is. Well, maybe, but we've seen a fair amount of, you know, large telcos that have had, you know, advertisements for insiders and saying, all you have to do is send me, you know, my, my guy is working from 10 to five. All you have to do is send me the, um, you know, the phone number that you want changed and the serial number to the new phone that you want it moved to. And um, I'll have my end, you know, a hundred, a hundred bucks in Bitcoin or whatever it is, 50 bucks a lot of times. Um, and then we'll change the phone number over. That's all that's needed. Well, that's going to all look the same. They're all going to go to the same provider for that swap. So that would be another way to kind of diagnose it. And obviously, if it's on the phone company side, that does get a little tricky. But there are things you can do internally as far as okay, now we're going to identify if we're, you know, sending a one time password to a new provider, maybe we're gonna, you know, implement another layer of security, or there's, there's going to be something else we're doing on our side, there's not a lot that you can do within a multi system, you know, attack for another company, but you certainly can try to get a hold of them and contact them and alert them. I know, you know, a handful of people that work for some of the telcos. And I know that unfortunately, this keeps them very busy and, and they do the best that they can. But uh, especially in the US, there are certain uh, laws that make it really difficult to uh, prevent SIM swapping on the telco side, uh, which is a whole other conversation for another day. Uh, but that was pointed out to me actually when I was speaking at an event a few years ago uh, and talking about SIM swapping, there was someone uh, in the, I think basically in the front row that raised their hand and said, um, <laughs> we would do more if we could. Uh, and they represented one of the top three telcos in the US. And I was like, oh, tell me more. <laughs> um, and he began, you know, kind of ended up helping me with part of my presentation. So just, you know, but it, it does not hurt at all to contact them. Just know that you can't just say, okay, well, it's on their side. So there's nothing we're going to do. <laughs> Yeah, I, I fully agree. And I think 
first of all, that was again a, per, a perfect addition of of make sure you you don't look for what was the the telco at, when the customer signed up. You need to look at what was the telco in the last text message that was sent. The other part is um, is that even if you can't prevent that SIM swapping event, or what you can do is use that as a signal in your own system, and that kind of ties to to my my next point, which is um, basically circles back to where we started. Multi-factor authentication in too many cases by too many companies is treated as if it is a sur- silver bullet, meaning once you have it, you can fully trust this person to be who they claim to be. Um, we work at fraud. We know that that is never the case. You always have to have multiple layers of defenses and identification and take multiple things into consideration. So whether it's because you can control the telco side of things and you, you use that signal and now you take other things into consideration, or it's just because this is your customers getting scammed, right? In both of those cases, you want to start using all of your other layers of defense. You want to, and you and if you didn't find your gaps elsewhere, it probably means you're over-relying on multi-factor authentication and your other defenses, you're giving it too much weight and you need to augment it with more pieces of data. I think that's such a good point. And we've been saying it for decades at this point that, you know, the right best fraud prevention has layers. Um, in fact, I don't know, at some point, I'll try to dig up the it was a really cheesy slide or corny slide. But in one of my presentations I did several years ago, I, you know, that quote from Shrek that ogres have layers. Um, I I think I had a picture of Shrek that said, you know, ogres have layers and so should fraud, <laughs> fraud strategies. Um <laughs> You do know that it at least stuck in several, that was my point was to have it stick in people's minds. But I've had a few people like bring that up, who, you know, we're at that conference or whatever, like, just like ogres. I'm like, yep, just like Shrek. But um, to your point, yeah, if you're not, you know, you're not seeing it anywhere else, then you're probably putting too many eggs in the multi-factor authentication basket. And that will work for a while. And it could work for a few years, right? Until it won't. And as I feel like is the theme on almost every episode of Fraudology for the last several months, like we are in another shift of time where what was working isn't working anymore. And I remember it so clearly in 2014, 2015 was the last time we saw it in e-commerce um, because of, you know, EMV and other, you know, things like that, as well as, you know, the data breaches were changing from card numbers to account details and information. So that's when we started seeing a lot more account takeovers and as well as new account fraud and all of that. Well, now we're seeing a whole other shift. And so because of that, we need to be more nimble and be able to augment it in different ways, whether that is, you know, overhauling your account validation process overall, or tweaking it by adding an extra layer or, you know, different tools and things like that, but making it so that it is, you're not just relying on one thing to keep the bad guys out, but you're also not having anything, any one thing that's keeping the good guys out either. So, you know, keeping that balance is always, uh, you know, at the forefront of all of our minds when we're talking strategy. Yeah, I think that the point of, of we need to be create more sophisticated systems and be more sophisticated in how we apply um, our different defenses 
whether it's 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 within our own company, whether it's our our, our providers or vendors, we uh, I think that has been been a theme of conversations you and I have had both on the podcast and off, um, and that is definitely something that we have to do now because um, our counterparties on the <laughs> bad side of the law. Uh, they have definitely upped their sophistication level. Yes, they have. And we, we need to match it. Um, yeah. And it may mean holding, you know, vendors accountable. It may mean having to switch providers. It may mean having to get creative, which is one of my favorite things to do when I'm working uh, with, you know, clients and things like that, trying to think outside the box and going, okay, well, and, you know, I think it can be, it can be a blessing and a curse, right? We can look at it and go, and I have many times in my career. Okay, you're expecting me to do what? And what are you giving me? Uh, you know, like, what are all of the, you know, the dependencies and all of the things? And okay, um, so how are we supposed to do that? But now I've turned it around to that's fun for me, right? Like, what are the dependencies? What are the things that you know, what are the obstacles where okay, you know, you don't have any engineering resources whatsoever. And we need to put this play that something in place in the next month. All right, cool. Let's think outside the box. Um, Because there are so many different that is one thing that we're lucky for in 2023 is that there are so many different types of tools, and there is no one way to do things. And so you know, you start with what you have, and you optimize that as much as possible. And then you look for, you know, other things to optimize it that hopefully, you know, will be within all the framework of what is needed uh, elsewhere, right? Whether it's because the marketing team doesn't want this or the, you know, you don't have the resources to do that or whatever it is. I mean, I've just chosen to turn it into a game, but I know that for a lot of people, it's, you know, the bane of their existence. So I'm not trying to underplay that at all. Um, Just wanting to circle back quickly on the two ways that, you know, aren't as easy because they aren't in your system, right? So, um, and while the phone company, you know, exploit or, you know, whether it's SIM swapping or man in the middle, while that isn't in your system, either you can identify it in your system, uh, you know, through the ways that we talked about. But you talked about one way, you know, at the beginning, which is often the most common, and that is that the user themselves is targeted to provide the the one-time password to someone. Um, I was realizing that I feel like I was... I wasn't describing it well because while, yes, there are phone calls being made and things like that, I think by far what is happening more than that is one-time password bots, um, OTP bots that are, you know, contacting, uh, texting, you know, um, users at the same time or right after saying, you know, we just sent you a test message to verify that, you know, that bank account is yours. You need to send us the six-digit code on this text, you know, that type of thing. Um, is that what you're seeing as well? Is the OT bot, OTP bots are really, I mean, scalable? <laughs> OTP bots allowed backers to scale social engineering, like to productize social engineering. Right? Like now they can do this in mass uh, instead of doing it one by one. That uh, there are other tools that are being used more, more and more often to, to get people to give you their um, the password, including basically IVR systems. So you get a call from a from an, a recorded message. It's not even a person that says um, we're about to send you a text with six digits to like we're calling from your bank or from your from this and this company. We're about to send you a, te- a text message with six digits to verify your identity. 
before we talk to you about potential fraud in your in your account, right? And then obviously, mo a lot of users would give the six digits as soon as they get the text on the phone number, they, they press them in. And now the bad actor has the six digits, they, they're logging into your account and they're committing fraud while you are going through a system that is fooling you into thinking your account is having a fraud problem. The only good thing about that is usually you get the unauth claims a lot faster, but um, but you still lose the money a lot of times. As the financial institution or as the e-commerce company, right. Yeah. I mean, the consumer will lose it at first, but obviously, you know, the entity that's losing it at the end is, you know, most of our listeners and players and, you know, therefore most of our listeners. <laughs> yeah. So, but, but the, the amount of different tools to perform this specific scam, both at scale and, and in one time, one by one cases for bad actors and, and talked about them. You talked a, a lot about the master manipulator attack last holiday season. Um, when you have farms of people who can make social engineering calls, like you, you can get a lot done. Um, so there are a lot of different ways to do this. I, from my perspective, tend to, like you just said, try to think about, okay, what can I do with the resources I have? Because clearly I'm not going to stop this from happening to our customers. But what I can do is try and make sure that our defenses note the spot that, well, yesterday you were in Louisiana and today you're in Maine and that is weird. Or yesterday you were in Berlin and today you are uh, in, in East Asia and that it is abnormal. Even if you pass multi-factor authentication, you're, it's still abnormal. And maybe we should do something a bit more sophisticated about this or treat this as a higher risk transaction. And a lot of different ways of how to handle that, a lot of different um, signals that you can use to identify anomalies, abnormalities. Uh, <clears throat> but when yeah, I was going to suggest devices as well, right? Like, you know, while IP addresses change quite a bit and, you know, can be changed quite a bit. And obviously we know that there, you know, are ways to emulate different devices and things like that. But if you've, you know, traditionally seen this user always on, you know, Apple iOS, and then, you know, all of a sudden, not only are they in a different place, but now they're using an Android or a Windows, you know, a PC, huh? You know, things like, like those are also some signals too, right? Yeah. And when you're investigating, that's one of the first things you want to investigate is how much abnormality signals are you identifying in these events? Um, if you are identifying a lot of them, then potentially you can, you can rework your system. If you're identifying very little of them, that opens up the possibility that this is a different type of attack. One that, Chris, I believe you know much better than I do, which is, the, the friendly fraud first party type attack. Um, in those situations, it is a much more, let's say, let's say complex process of both handling and verifying. Uh, what is the cause of those attacks and what, and how do you stop them? I, we can have another half an hour conversation about if I actually think that they're more complex or not. Um, but that's, <laughs> and it's not me trying to say, oh, I, it's just, I, because I focused so much of my career on first party fraud, both in chargebacks and then, you know, recently with refund fraud, to me, there are signals. And I think, you know, I've done episodes on this, you know, previously as far as root cause analysis and, and um, kind of 
you know, reverse engineering things. But um, when you do find that they're really, you've gone through this checklist or this diagnostics checklist, you know, of the five different things and the first four weren't there, you know, and, but you saw this spike anyway of unauthorized, you know, multi-factor, then yeah, the chances are that this is probably either intentional and coordinated, like we've seen with refund claims fraud, or completely, you know, (laughs) Just random and a sign of the economy that people are that a lot more people are saying that they didn't authorize the transaction uh, that they did. So looking at that, and then what I would say is, you know, root cause analysis is your friend there too. Being able to see what are they claiming, well, what was you know, you're looking at different types of signals, but it's not that dissimilar as far as looking for the root cause. Now, the way that you're going to prevent it in the upfront is going to be different because you're not going to be able to identify a user, you know, unless they have a pattern of doing this before, which isn't always the case, you know, and even then that's separate business decisions, but you're not going to be able to say, okay, that user right there is going to, you know, call us in a month and say they are usually like two months, you know, because to your point, like on timing wise, that's another good indicator is oftentimes um, first party fraud is often uh, just, I mean, there's always exceptions, but often they are reported later than third party fraud. Um Sometimes the timing just happens to be after the statement arrives, the, you know, the credit card statement arrives or when the credit cards, you know, bill is due, (laughs) Um, other times not, but you know, sometimes that can just happen to be the case. Um, But, you know, when you're looking at those claims and things like that, like, you know, so what I mean by that is other than looking at a history of, okay, this person keeps getting their account, you know, taken over or keeps having unauthorized you can't necessarily look at that specific instance and say they're they're going to do this like you can with third party fraud. What you can do is look at the different types of things that they're claiming. You can look at the different things that they're doing um, on their account. And oftentimes there's policies that can be made um, that can you know be helpful in enabling it so that those that can't happen as much. Um, you know, if they're claiming that, I don't know, I'm trying to think of something off the top of my head. Um, if they're, you know, claiming that something wasn't described as well, or they didn't know that, you know, that amount was going to be taken out of their account on a certain day or whatever else. Well, then you can, if you see that enough, and you have enough people claiming that, whether they're doing that because they genuinely didn't know, or because they want their money back, you know, what you can do is prevent those claims by making sure that it's very clear in the upfront, right? This will be rebuilt at this time, or this is, you know, this money will be taken out of your account right now rather than tomorrow, or, you know, it will, whatever that, that instance is. So again, it's looking for patterns and root cause analysis just in a different way. It's using a different part of our fraud brain. I think that was perfect. I, I have nothing substantial to add that that was an amazing breakdown. Um, it's, yeah, it, it, I, I think you have to take into consideration that it might be a product problem and not just an abuser problem. But like you said, there, there are scripts of how to do uh, first party fraud investigations that you should follow. And um, that 
can easily be another hour conversation. But that is the, I would say like the fifth option. So if you went through all of the other things, nothing checks out. There are no negative signals that this is a bad actor. It seems like this is their legitimate user in all these cases. Now go to this different script. Right. Yeah. And I would still, because we're investigating a spike, I would still want to look for similarities between all of them because typically when there's a spike, something happened, you know, whether there's a Reddit thread somewhere saying, oh, I found a way to get, you know, (laughs) this, this for free or, you know, something else. There's got to be some kind of a, um, yeah, a trigger or something that's, you know, similar for everything, a commonality, but, um, it, it could also just be as simple as the economy, right? I mean, when I, uh, when I really had to focus on first party fraud, it was right after the 2008 recession in the US, you know, when discretionary spending went way down. And I was hired by, you know, a large online travel company to try to reduce these in some way, because there were so many people going on vacation, they still want to go on vacation, they just couldn't afford it. So after going on large vacations, then they would just call their bank and say their card was stolen. Or, you know, there was more seaweed on the beach than the website claimed or whatever the, you know, that's just always the one that sticks in my head the most because I was very angry that day. Um, And for me, actually, I have, um, I don't know, maybe I maybe I'm not the only one, maybe I am. But I have some level of, I wouldn't call it respect, but some level of, not even appreciation, but I don't know, I can't think of the word, but I expect, you know, third party fraud, right? And a lot of them, it's doing business, right? They're, or, you know, as you said, in a lot of cases these days, the actual people who are perpetrating the fraud are often victims of human trafficking, whether it's, you know, through the master manipulators, through, you know, pig butchering scams, through trying to harvest one-time passwords, whatever their purpose is that they're being given. And it, I've actually been very encouraged by several headlines recently out of India, where um, police in India are just taking down some of these call centers and these farms uh, left and right that I'm really encouraged by and um, hoping to have a guest to talk about that soon. Uh, who knows a lot about those things, but um, unfortunately they're, you know, because it's happening in India, well, now they're getting moved to, you know, other parts of the world that are a lot less um, governed. And so I read an article about that yesterday, as far as, you know, on a border, on a border area uh, in Southeast Asia, where there's a lot more of these, you know, being set up. So, you know, not that we have respect or admiration for the people who are actually doing it. I think we can have empathy for those people, but um, that's a business in a lot of ways. Whereas first party fraud to me is just straight up lying. And even though it can be a crime of opportunity at times, I usually have less respect for people that do that um, than people who are, you know, doing it as their job. I don't know. Maybe that's really twisted, but. (laughs) Yeah, I think. Um, I think first party fraud feels more of a personal upfront when you're working, when you're an operator, it's, it's, you are, you were a good customer of mine and now you are clearly lying to my face while third party fraud a lot of times is, this is your profession and mine. Yours is to try and get past me and mine is to try and stop you. And it sucks that this is the world we live in, but 
there's something much less personal about it. So yes, yeah, that's a good point. That's probably a lot of it. Yeah, I think also it's the fact that, you know, like we've been saying, right, that one of them is a little more systematic and a little easier to identify uh, the activity and the upfront as well as the solution, Um, at least the temporary solution, right? We know that (laughs) hopefully it'll last longer than, you know, several months or a year, but they will eventually adapt to that. I mean, I remember very clearly in my mind, so many things that we've put in place over the years when I thought, this is it, they're never going to get past this. And then technology comes along and, uh, you know, the fraudsters essentially say, hold my beer, and they do. So, you know, we've got to keep adapting. Uh, It's the zombie analogy, right? They're always going to be there. (laughs) Well, we know that, you know, the episodes come to an end when Carice is mixing analogies and talking about zombies drinking beer or something like that. So <laughs> it's a good time to <laughs> It's been a long day for both of us, but Gil, I just appreciate so much when you come on. I feel like I feel like I am smarter when I'm having conversations with you. So uh, you help up level my own game and uh, I appreciate it so much. So thank you so much for your willingness to come on last minute. Uh, although I always want, you know, I would invite you all the time, but um, you know, I uh, just appreciate you so much and your knowledge. And as always, I will make sure to put a link to your LinkedIn in the show notes. If anyone wants to contact you about this or anything else, you are obviously a wealth of knowledge and you know, one of my go-to people uh, when I have a question. So thank you again. Thank you, Chris. It was a pleasure. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.